2: The following is an encore segment of Cyber Law and Business Report.
3: Good morning. Welcome to another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. This is Bennett Kelly talking to you live from um, Santa Monica here at the Internet Law Center, the heart of Silicon Beach. I want to thank you for joining us. And uh, we had a, a brief intermission last week um, caused by Hurricane Matthew, although. Um, we are sitting safely in the um, in Southern California. Our studio broadcast through Florida, and, and I had to relocate um, evacuate during the uh, hurricane so uh, apologize we couldn 't come broadcast to you last week, um, but we have a great show for you today and um, we have with us from Human Rights Watch Christine. Beckerley, and she is talking to us from Amman, Jordan, and we're going to talk about a report that the Human Rights Rights Watch has done on um, women's rights in Saudi Arabia, particularly your um, this legacy of male guardianship that we're gonna talk about. And um, so we're gonna have her on in a minute. Um, but first I just wanna highlight a couple of things. Um, we've had some past guests in the news. Um, you may recall we had Frank Farinkoff on. Um back in 2013 to talk about when he was still head of the American gaming association, talk about the state of online gambling. And uh, he's also one of the co-directors of the presidential debate commission. And he had a big role in um, preventing Donald Trump from sitting, um, some of the um, people who were alleging they were harassed by the Clintons, um, in the VIP box during the debate. Um, last night we had Joe McGovern premiered his, um, documentary the other side and i want to congratulate him on that he was on um about a year ago and then raj chahan who was on earlier this year with homie they just raised 3.2 million um but it's fitting that one other note today is um national free thought day that comes after the recognition of the end of the salem witch trials and the the a legacy of religious tyranny, and that's kind of fitting that we now are going to talk about some of the, the issues that are occurring in Saudi Arabia. It seems to be a similar pattern. Um, but, uh, Christine, are you with us?
1: I'm with you, yes. Thank you for having me.
3: Thank you for joining us. And, um, so you, you're talking to us from Amman, Jordan. And, um, how long have you been based in Am- Amman?
1: Um, I moved out here, I've been here for about a year.
3: And tell us, for those who aren't familiar, tell us about Human Rights Watch.
1: Sure, so Human Rights Watch is a global advocacy organization. We cover more than 90 countries, and for each of those countries, we sort of look at various violations of international law and then we try and write detailed reports on those violations and advocate with governments and with the media and with the public to sort of say how can we make sure these violations stop
3: and you have been focused on the, you're the Yemen and, and Kuwait researcher in the Middle East and North African division um, and the uh, Feinberg fellow covering um, Saudi Arabia and women's rights
1: yes yeah so for portfolio yes so basically last year i was entirely focused on women's rights in saudi arabia and then for the last few months i've been uh doing yemen and kuwait work as well
3: so um the, the role of women in saudi arabia or the plight of women in saudi arabia um it isn't in some ways, there has been some progress in some ways, so it hasn't been that different than, um, say, five centuries ago. Can you explain what what is the status of women today in Saudi Arabia?
1: So, well, the first thing I would say is actually what we found in our report, and the reason we did our report, was we wanted to really look at What had changed for Saudi women, um, because we had written a similar report about eight years previously on the same issue, the male guardianship system. Um, And what we ultimately concluded was, you know, the Saudi government has made some changes for women in the country that have in some way eased restrictions on their lives. But if you sort of cut down to it... um, Women are still systematically discriminated against within Saudi Arabia. And one of the biggest things is the male guardianship system, which means when a woman wants to get married, When she wants to study abroad, when she wants to exit prison, when she wants to travel, she needs a male guardian, a legal male relative to give his approval and his permission. Um, And there's a whole bunch of other things that make it difficult for women in Saudi Arabia. So, for example, the famous one is they can't drive, which is true. Um, But there's also government enforced sex segregation and a number of systematic barriers to them sort of functioning as full citizens in Saudi society.
3: So, for example, the, the women were just given, one, the right to vote, and two, the right to hold office in Saudi Arabia. I believe it was last year they held the elections.
1: Yeah, so in uh, December they had women... Women in Saudi Arabia voted and ran for office in municipal council elections for the first time in the country's history, which was, I mean, it should be noted that they still face systematic um, barriers when trying to register to vote and when trying to campaign as candidates. But it was sort of a symbolic victory in that women themselves in Saudi Arabia had campaigned for this right for years. So it really was a testament to their continued advocacy um, and sort of tirelessness that this was where they got. And then a number of women actually won seats on the council, still very, very small proportions, but it was something that I think a lot of women in Saudi Arabia said to themselves, okay, we've achieved this. And like, what can we achieve next?
3: But um, having won the seat on the council, I I just read that recently the, um, the regime said that, well, you fine, you're on the council, but you still have to have segregation of the sexes. Yeah. You can't be in the same room. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So what happened was, exactly right. So they basically, they had these elections, it got a lot of coverage in the western media, and everyone sort of said, oh, look at these reforms Saudi's making. Um, but soon after, the government said, okay, all of the municipal councils have to be sex-segregated, and actually one female councillor stepped down after that decision, Um and a lot of women were saying this is going to impede their work because you're talking about a small council where people are supposed to come together and debate community issues and now you're asking women to be in a separate room and to participate via video link, which I mean, of course, is just not going to allow them, particularly when you're talking about one or two women on these councils versus however many men, it's, it's going to be very hard for the women counselors to pay, play a real role.
3: And um, it, it is... a. In- At this point in time, for example, the election was occurring while Saudi Arabia was, I believe, the chair of the Human Rights Committee at the U.N.?
1: It wasn't the chair, but it was on the Human Rights Council um, at the U.N., so it's and it's still actually a council member, um, and it's running for re-election actually as we speak. And Human Rights Watch has sort of said that, given Saudi Arabia's domestic record, but also given its um, massive abuses in Yemen, it really, I mean, Saudi Arabia like doesn't have a place or it shouldn't have a place on the UN's human rights body.
3: And, and so, to what, do you think, to what extent was the, the election? Possibly a window dressing to placate and maintain its status at the UN Rights Committee.
1: Um, I don't. I can't say whether or not or if they were directly linked, but I would say that in the past, Saudi Arabia has done certain things where it's sort of like a band aid for the bigger systemic issues. So you know, you allow women to vote and run for municipal council elections, okay, that's great, but if they still can't drive themselves to the polling stations and if they still need a male guardian to give them the lease to prove where they live um, or to get various forms of identification, you're still talking about it being very difficult for women to register to vote or run as candidates if the men in their lives don't approve and support them, which they won't always do.
3: the, the restrictions we're talking about in women not being on the drive and the male guardianship, is, is that something that it, it, it seems to be unique to Saudi Arabia, which suggests that it's not a, a Quranic restriction, but more just the carried on cultural restriction from the, the Bedouin community? so um
1: yeah so i mean the male guardianship the way in which it is practiced sort of at the scale and scope with which saudi arabia practices it is unique to saudi arabia but other countries do have um, remnants of this system within their laws so for example restrictions on getting married or uh, other other countries will have se- like similar, but again, nowhere as large and intrusive as Saudi Arabia. Um, but what I will say is that we did talk to a number of women uh, who were very emphatic that in their understanding of Islam, sort of the way in which male guardianship is practiced is not necessary, and that other fundamental principles within Islam, like equality and respect and these sorts of things, go against um, what Saudi Arabia is practicing through the male guardianship system. And we actually, I mean, after the report was released, which I think is really great, is a Saudi religious official official came out publicly and said that male guardianship is only required when a woman sort of signs the marriage contract, which is much, much, much less than what Saudi Arabia is currently doing as a government. So I think the hope is that more um, religious officials and more people will be making these arguments as they have in the past, that really this is not religiously required. Uh, and, actually, you are internationally obligated to to stop discriminating against your women like this.
3: So let's walk through some of the examples, and, and one of the most troubling ones is um, a woman who is abused and wishes to press charges. Mm. Explain that to us.
1: Yeah, so, okay. Um, so basically, the way it works is that the easiest way to explain it is just um, through walking back from some of the cases that we, we talked to and, and spoke with for this report. So, for example, um, I spoke to one woman who was in Saudi Arabia and she desperately, desperately wanted to leave the country. Um, and but to do so, she needed her father, her male guardian's permission to travel abroad. He, of course, wasn't going to let her travel abroad because she alleged that members of her family were abusive. Um So then the next question is, okay, but can you seek help uh, in Saudi Arabia to flee from what, what you're describing as an abusive situation? And what the response was, well, actually, if I were to try and flee, what my parents, what my father could do is bring a claim of disobedience against me in Saudi courts. And then, in fact, I could be the one who would get in trouble. And then if that claim, and this actually happened to another woman, if the if the father brings a claim against a woman for disobedience and the court finds her to be disobedient, then they can actually punish her to, to prison time. And then if she goes to prison, she can finish her sentence, but then she needs to be released to a male guardian to leave the prison. So you're talking about a woman could have been put in prison by a man and then require his approval to leave the prison. Um And sort of even more, uh, not even more, but also in a very troubling way, we talked to a number of domestic violence and violence against women specialists because Saudi Arabia passed this law in 2013 that um, criminalized domestic abuse, which is okay; That's great. That's a step forward. Um, But within the definition of the law, it says that abuse is defined as that which exceeds a male gar- a guardian's authority, which leaves room, of course, for like some sense of disciplining um, if, if a court were to determine that it was within a guardian's authority. And what the law and its implementing regulations then go on to do is really prioritize reconciliation of the woman with her family over the woman's protection. And so there are a lot of problems in the law and a lot of problems in the way in which shelters deal with women who've, who've been abused, um, whereby they're really pushing them to reunite with their family, as opposed to ensuring that they can live independently and away from abuse, sort of in a safe and secure way. Um, so there's a lot of actual horror stories about violence against women in Saudi Arabia, where women are facing um, huge challenges, to, not only just to escape abuse, but even if they escape abuse, to stay away from it and not sort of be forced back um, into a bad situation.
3: And, and how prevalent is um, domestic violence in Saudi Arabia?
1: Um, we don't have clear stats. I don't know if anybody has clear stats. Um, but it's certainly high uh, in terms of, so I think one year they recorded 8,000 or something cases. Uh, but it's. I don't have clear stats, but... All I do know is that um, from some of the numbers that we've seen, which are anecdotal, it does appear as though it is a situation that a number of women are dealing with and and don't really have good options when they are dealing with those issues.
3: So um, let's explain who the guardian is. So I'm I'm a, a child, so I'm assuming it's my father. At what point does it not become my father?
1: Okay, so when you're born, um, your dad's your male guardian um, until you get married. And then when you get married, your husband becomes your male guardian. Um, If neither your husband or your father are alive or around, then it can be a brother, it can be an uncle, or in some cases, it can even be your son. So we spoke with women whose sons were their male guardians.
3: And. which is kind of an odd situation. And so they need their approval to, um, for example, to travel?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, to study abroad and in some cases to study.
3: And what about work?
1: And to work, it's the government doesn't require companies to ask for mail guardian permission, but a number of companies still do. And the government doesn't, penalize them, and in fact, we actually spoke with a woman who worked for a government agency who was asked for guardian permission, so.
3: And, and so, Human Rights Watch does a report called Boxed In, Women in Saudi Arabia's Male Guardianship System, and um, what led you to, to initiate this report? And by the way, the report and background information on this issue is available on our blog at um, cyberlawradio.wordpress.com.
1: Um, yeah, so we, we decided to initiate the report because, I mean, partly because there had been this, this reporting that Saudi Arabia had done made these reforms in various sectors. Um, and because we had written this report in eight years before, but we hadn't really done a deep dive since. Um, and so we really did want to, like we went in with eyes wide open sort of saying, hey, let's see and we're hoping to find positive change, right? Like you always want to see positive change. Um, so then what we did was like a very careful analysis of a variety of different aspects of a, women's, of a woman's life. So like you said, work, health, travel, um, marriage, divorce, child custody, violence against women. Uh, and went through the laws policies and practices as well as interviewing um 60 saudi citizens to say what's the sat like what's the status now um and unfortunately the conclusion after basically a years worth of research was the male guardianship system remains largely intact even though there's been some reforms and it remains the most significant impediment to women's lives in saudi today and um I
3: think we're going, to, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, um, we'll have more on the um, Human Rights Watch study on males already shipped in Saudi Arabia and the Twitter campaign to change it. you will listen to Cyber Law and Business Report, only on Cranberry.fm. Stay tuned for more
2: of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors.
4: All of your favorite webmaster radio.fm programs.
3: Affiliate Buzz. Next gen now.
4: CEO Coach, Cyber Law and Business Report. Have found a new home. SEO Rockstars. SEM Synergy. Web College. SEO 101. PPC Rockstars. Strings with Maria Retan. All of your favorite Webmaster Radio.fm programs have found a new home. Cranberry Radio. Cranberry.fm. Looking for a white-label SEO and social platform for your clients? Think eBrands. Free and unlimited SEO audit reports. eBrands. Premium Facebook apps and welcome page creators. eBrands. doesn't grow on trees, so you'll probably have a better chance of growing your business with Cranberries. What? Cranberry Radio, cranberry.fm.
2: The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Here is Bennett Kelly. The following is an encore segment of Cyber Law and Business Report.
5: Um, and we're (laughs) back here with Dan Lyons and (laughs) that was Elaine of First Nation. But any event, um, your book Disrupted has a number of stories in it that are parallel to each other, and there there are two levels of disruption, it seems. The first is a disruption of your career um, with the opening chapter of What Happens in Newsweek. Um, Then you go to a a disruptor, this new innovative um, tech company, and and then this is also kind of comical, um, you know, Mike Judge type of send up of this tech, you know, this almost you know, can't shoot straight tech company with its ridiculous phrases such as, you know, when someone's fired, they, it's a it's a graduation. And, and then there's this kind of um, but a more serious part of what 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 is going on in this disruption within the company in terms of. Um, how you, you make numerous comparisons to uh, you know the the sweatshops in the in textiles and now you have these content mills and you know and what are the millennials what are they get getting for all of everything they're get, giving up you know and what are they uh, in terms of you
3: know
5: okay I give you I give you cookies and free juice but you know we, are, is that what you want to give everything up for? And so let's start with the first thing. You know, you you were a successful journalist. You're in your fifties, and all of a sudden, boom! Um, you know the life that you, you had expected to live changed. You know, inalterably, and, and there's no signs that that life's going. It's going to be hard to get back to that in in your industry. You know, and kind of it's. But you're not necessarily. It's not There's nothing unique about that story, particularly in journalism. Um, whereas you, know, our generation before us, you know, that that's not something that happened when they were in their fifties. They were kind of an autopilot and just cruising for the next twenty years until their retirement.
6: Yeah, I think um, yeah, I think you're right, um, and I also think that there was it's a it's an odd situation for people of my age. I'm in my fifties now, so. You know, I entered the workforce in the last century with, I guess, what were last century expectations. That was sort of based on the career or the work life that my father had, which was you go to work for one company and you spend your life there and you retire with a gold watch and a pension and healthcare for life. And um, that kind of got blown up in midway through my career, and then certainly in 2008 when there was the real big crash. Um, and the internet has contributed to that as well. And so there's been, and there's like a new set of rules of engagement between employers and employees, and if you were 60 when everything blew up, you could just kind of take early retirement and slide out of the workforce, and if you were 22, you're coming in, and this is just the way you expect things to be, but, but people in my age, I think, um, I, at least I know myself, I, I remember feeling just kind of like, wait a minute, who changed the rules? Who, who how did everything, you know? How did this happen, and how do I adapt to that? How do I change in mid-career? Because I don't think employers really want to help. I don't think they're looking to help uh, people, you know, learn a skill. They're just like, fine, we'll go, we'll we'll hire young kids, you know. So yeah, there's this sort of lost generation, and I'm a member of it that that is. Um, uh, uh, and it's kind of caught between these two worlds,
5: and, and that I think, in know, in in kind of a macro scale, I think we see that at play this year in the election. You know, to a lot of extent, there are a lot of people who, are in some shape or form, whether it was because of their fifties or because the, their industry segment is gone, they are disruptive. You know, they're kind of the voter um, angst is. Maybe because they are disrupted by something going on in the economy of the world today.
6: I agree, and I think I think at both ends of this spectrum. So you look at Trump on the far right, and then Bernie Sanders on the far left. In a way, their their fans are reacting to th- th- that. What you just mentioned, right? That the, everything's changing, and they're kind of looking for someone to blame. I actually think the the big blame is the internet itself. That the that the sort of you know, nut graph version of our time will be the internet was invented and everything blew up. Right. And, and that, the, but there was more to it than that. There's globalization. So this. But, right. Um, but yeah, I think, so people are upset about this and, and they don't know who to blame. And so if you're on the Trump end of the spectrum, you have a certain set of villains. If you're on the Bernie Sanders end of the spectrum, you have another different set of villains. But, uh, but yeah, I think that, that you're absolutely right. And that's, that's, uh, that's actually what I'm trying to write about in my in my next book that I'm still trying to get together is this idea that um, this this uh, phenomenon is is bigger than just you know my little story of getting laid off and trying to reinvent myself it's a, it's a, a generational story about uh, a, a, about a big shift in society and the world and, and
5: right uh, yeah. I mean it's, it's, it's disrupted I think is a very apt Title for your book because of the, you know, the kind of the dual meaning and the dual application. But in, in terms of you know, just focusing on you and, and, and the segment you're talking about, it's interrupted. You know, your life all of a sudden just got interrupted, and now you're put on a, a different track, and uh, yeah. you know, all the rules have changed, and you had zero say in it. And I guess that's that's where the frustration comes. You know, I, I played by these rules, and I was all set to you know make it to the finish line, and you, you put me in a new game.
6: Yeah, and it's at a time when in your fifties, when you're right, where I mean, maybe you're maybe you're coasting. I don't. Know, that, that, that's probably you know fair enough to some extent, but also where in days gone by, that's when you uh, were making the most money, right? And you're really socking it away in those last ten, fifteen years of your career. Maybe your kid. In my case, I had young kids, but for most people, the kids are kind of grown up. So that was like the the last 10 or 15 years where you had some sort of position of eminence in, in, in your organization and you, you know, but you didn't work maybe as hard as the young kids, but that's okay. You weren't there for, for that. You were there to, whatever, do other, you know, add value right. in other ways. And, 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 that's yeah, that gets taken away. And I, what was extra weird for me was that, you know, I'm a, I'm a business journalist, so I'd spent all these years writing about disruption and, uh, you know, covering these things where, like, oh, Sun Microsystems is getting blown up by this new rival and their whole market's going out. And, you know, 10,000 people are getting laid off. And I would write about these things and never really give thought to the fact that until I went through it myself, like, those 10,000 people are 10,000 people with a spouse and kids and right. scrambling now to, to start over. and. Uh, I think I had been a little glib as a journalist in covering these things and sort of saying, "Well, this is a good thing. This is how the economy grows and things change over and the old dies and the new rises." And um, it was different to be going through it. And, and
5: uh, I so, think yeah. so. You do land well. You well. You I, land.
6: <laughs> I land and I make a bad decision though. I, I land and I go to a startup. Um. HubSpot. HubSpot in Boston. Can you
5: you explain in two sentences what HubSpot does?
6: HubSpot makes software that's used by marketing departments inside big companies, or by small business owners who need to do marketing for their little company, for their flower shop or or, um, plumbing business. And it's built around creating. It's marketing that's built around creating a blog. And trying to drive traffic to your blog and then converting that traffic, those readers, into customers for whatever you're selling. So it's, it's a set of tools, software tools, very easy to use. That Let's say the example of a flower shop. You and I had a flower shop. We could subscribe to HubSpot software over the Internet for, I don't know, 500 bucks a month. And we would use that to create a blog and <clears throat> send out email to uh, anybody we had in our email database and try to get business so that when someone in our town looked up, I need to send flowers, we would show up at the top of their, the Google search results. Um, that wasn't two sentences, I'm sorry, but, but essentially, <laughs> it's software. That, let, that was kind of the point. <laughs> yeah, it's software that lets small businesses find customers. Okay. You know, that's, uh, uh, yeah, using, using online tools like email and blogs.
5: I, I kind of sus- I suspected that the answer was no, but it, it was interesting just to, to hear it. But um, <laughs> you, you go to HubSpot, and what was your expectation of what that would be like?
6: Um, well, it was... I, I thought it was going to be really cool, and I was going to learn a lot for a couple... Uh, I, I, I knew it was going to be, you know, different than journalism. But... Uh, the two founders were from MIT. I thought, oh, they're really smart. And and I do think that, that marketing is being reinvented. And the way people uh, buy and sell um, <clears throat> products online is changing. And And I think they're on to something with this. So I kind of thought, these guys are kind of hot. This is going to be cool. This is a, a cool company that's going to have a... Uh, a big IPO, and I'm going to uh, be there for it. That's uh, I, I kind of thought it was going to be a cool adventure. And,
5: and, and actually, an important point, that they are a pre-IPO company, um, and one other important point is, we use the word Silicon Valley, and you explain in your book, you, that is not a geographic term. That is um, referring to this kind of whole um, tech disruptive um, type of environment, whether it's in... So, um, Silicon Valley, Boston, Austin, Seattle, wherever,
6: or LA, where you are, Silicon Beach. Silicon yeah. Beach, yeah. yeah,
5: yeah. Although there, <laughs> there is a that's a unique subculture. Is um, it? Well, I mean, it's you get the whole LA flavor of it. You know, the kind of the dude part of it, um, <laughs> but it, it is you no, know, it is taking off. And actually, you know, as I mentioned at the start of the show, today's Silicon Beach Fest and You know, that started off as a small show, and it's actually now now in its fifth year or sixth year, and, um, you know, the the business here, Silicon Beach is taking off. In part, I think, what's happening is what everyone predicted at the start of the Internet, the integration of media. And, you know, so everyone is down here because of content and media, and that's what L.A. is. L.A. is a content town but there's also non con i mean dollar shape club that's not content that's that's just great marketing you know and uh so you know it's it's not that's not strictly the story um so you go, you're you're in boston um is, is the office in boston
6: uh yeah in cambridge yeah cambridge yeah. okay yeah
5: and and so um there's certain parts of this that are just quite comical like you 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 make a reference to um you make a reference to the fact that you were reading a book on Scientology and the uh you see certain parallels of cultism even
6: yeah yeah absolutely and and brainwashing and groupthink and uh uh Yeah, it started kind of freaking me out. Like, I I had never seen people who were so uncynical and so sort of believing of everything they were fed. And there was this idea that, you know, you try to motivate people by telling them how important our work is and we're on this important mission to save the world and make the world a better place. And we're so lucky to be here and we're so special. It was very evangelical, very, very much like that. felt very much like a religion.
5: And, um... There's some weird things you talk about, and explain the fact that the one of the founders would bring a teddy bear to meetings.
6: Yeah, Dharmesh Shah, he had a he wrote a big article for LinkedIn about how he thought customers were so important, which is, you know, okay, duh, but um, and he would bring it, he'd started bringing a teddy bear to meetings, and putting this teddy bear he called it Molly, so he'd put her in the chair, and with his management team, and they would have to have the teddy bear remind them all that they no matter what decision they make they had to think about the customer they you know customer comes first and um yeah I, I, and I just thought that was you know hilarious right and crazy and kind of funny I mean it's out of her anybody's out have ever been in my life if, if the boss did that and then wrote about it and was so happy about it I thought oh my god everybody would be laughing at this guy behind his back but but nobody did. Like, the crazier thing than the teddy bear was that nobody out of these 500 people made fun of the teddy bear. Everybody thought, oh, that's that's really cool. Darmesh is so innovative. I'm like, have I gone, you know, down the rabbit hole? Am I living in crazy land? Or then I start thinking, maybe I'm crazy. Maybe the whole right. world has changed. And everybody brings a teddy bear now. And I'm I'm the one who doesn't get it. I'm the old guy, you know? Um, so so to your pet yeah. rock. <laughs> Clean to my pet rock, yeah. Or just, you know, I... Anyway, so it was yeah, it was it was one of these moments. Right, I actually called a friend of mine. and said, "This guy, look, read this article. and Tell me, am I am I crazy?" And he was like, "No, no, no, you're not crazy. Get out of there. You know, they're, they're nuts. Those people are, are nutty." But you know, they were. It was part of a larger thing, which is uh, they just wanted to reinvent everything about businesses and companies, and they were going to change the way everything was done. And um, so. Uh, you know that was that was they were open to anything, which in a way is good. In a way, it's kind of a
5: but there's also a sense of uh, hubris about it. And I, I remember, oh, yeah. I, and I don't know if you you must have heard this a, a thousand times and, and tried not to throw up an equal number of times that in, at during the, the pre dot com crash the oh it's not the bottom line it's the top line. Yeah, like, that uh, 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 Hello, I mean, the the rules of economics didn't change, just because it's, you know, and, and this whole kind of sense of that internet utopianism, that, the, oh, it's a new world, you don't understand the internet, and when the internet is really just a, a means of distribution, it's another channel.
6: Yeah, but there's this is somehow magical thinking that attaches to it that says, uh, no, you can actually... Um, you can... Uh, <sighs> You can go on forever and never make a profit, right? Like right. That somehow that's possible. And um, But partly it is that the market is rewarding companies for top-line growth and not worrying about profits. Although now, and just in the past six months you've seen this shift where people are now starting to sort of insist on profitability and you see companies trying to either become profitable or show that they're cash flow positive or they're getting closer to being profitable. They're profitable in one part of the world, you know. Um, so I think there is some, uh, there is some interest now in profits, but yeah, that's what I was seeing when I was there. It's like, nobody is paying any attention to profitability. It's just, um, just, you know, grow, grow, grow as fast as you can.
5: Well, one person paying attention to profitability is, is our producer, and we, we're go gonna go. take a short break. We'll come back when we talk to more of uh, disrupted with deadlines after these messages.
2: Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and business report. at this brief recess for our sponsors.
3: Orange Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com.
4: All of your favorite webmaster radio.fm programs.
6: Affiliate Buzz. Next gen now.
4: CEO Coach, Cyber Law and Business Report. Have found a new home. SEO Rockstars. SEM Synergy. Web College. SEO 101. PPC Rockstars. First strings with
3: Maria Retail.
4: All of your favorite Webmaster Radio.fm programs have found a new home. Cranberry Radio. Cranberry.fm a more refreshing kind of talk radio cranberry radio cranberry.fm the best
2: gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here this is the cyber law and business report here is bennett kelly
5: and we're back and we're talking to Dan Lyons. And before I jump in, I just want to give a great shout out to our good friend Brenda Christensen, um, who you know from our year end um, Heroes and Zeroes show. Um, Brenda's the one who introduced us to Dan. So um, thank you again, Brenda. So um, we, we come to the, our final segment. And the big issue that sees it really been resonated from your book. Is and it comes a year after the whole um, Ellen Powell trial, where um, Silicon Valley, was in when essence, is on trial for and then its lack of diversity as to gender. But you you just raise a, another issue: is the, the ageism in Silicon Valley? And um, but as well as its its lack of diversity as a whole. And a,
6: oh, what, what is your impression there? Um, I think it's a a really big problem. And in fact, I, I did a panel with Ellen Powell uh, <clears throat> a month or so ago in, in Oakland about this, where I think, yeah, I encountered what I think was bias on on the axis of age. But when I looked around at HubSpot, I could see that there was also a problem with bias on race and even gender. and And then it occurred to me, oh, these things kind of all go hand in hand. And um, and I guess I I am taken aback because I want to believe that the tech industry really is progressive and trying to make the world a better place and really is committed to um, equality and you know those sort of basic values. That and but when you look at how they proceed from the startups to the big companies, they are really not doing that. And and I, I find it. Uh, very, very disturbing, and, and they. I don't think there's any hope of them changing. You know, it's very, very upsetting and disturbing the way tech companies are behaving.
5: And it. What type of reaction are you getting? Is, is the ages? I got you know got to tell you, yeah, I'm just a year younger than you, and I go to trade shows, and you know there is that kind of the frat party culture, and uh, you know it's it's a very young. Um, predominantly male culture.
6: Yeah, there's this bro culture thing that's. I think it's kind of new in tech, and it's. Um, it is definitely, uh, definitely weird, and I, I don't know, you know. I don't know who decided that a frat house was the great model for how to build a company, but that's kind of what they have. You know, they have these guys who are kind of frat guys who. may have this concept called. A culture fit, and they say, well, you know, we hire people that we want to go have a beer with after work. I okay, It's really important that you fit in with the culture here. Um, but I'm not sure if that's the best way to hire people based on who you want to have a beer with, and uh, I think what it ends up creating is this lack of diversity, because people hire people who remind them of themselves, and so white right. guys hire white guys, and um, yeah, it's a it's an insidious thing, and, and and I, I guess you would
5: get a culture, you, you kind of get a, a, a homogeneous culture in a way. You know, oh, where, yeah. you, you, where most people's favorite quote is Did we give up after Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? Rather than you know, any, anything else more sophisticated than that. Not that that's yeah. not a great quote, but so Where did that come from? Yeah, that's from that's a Bluto in Animal House.
6: Oh right, yeah, yeah, right. That's right, that's right. Yeah, he's trying to motivate the guys in, in yeah. do uh, we get one? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
5: <laughs> and, you know, shut up. He's on a roll. And, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And but, so, I mean, how is there? How does that change? <clears throat> I mean, is, is it is it my field that has to change? Does law have to say, wait
6: a minute? Or is it... I, um, maybe. I think there is a, a law angle. I, you know, I was also on that panel with Ellen Powell. There was a, a, a labor lawyer
5: from
6: yeah. the Bay Area. But her her feeling was that, like, lawsuits don't work. I mean, there, there are laws, but it's just very hard to win any of those suits. So she had become, I think, almost jaded about the... Uh, or... or, or Disappointed that um, that in in, in getting redressed that way. I mean, I think honestly that the the people who run these companies aren't going to change unless they think they can make more money. Change that'll that will benefit them financially. I just don't think there's any. I don't. They'll they'll pay lip service to diversity, but they won't really do anything unless they they are forced to. But that's
5: the irony because okay the one place where there are gray hairs, it would be with the VCs and they're not telling them, Hey, why don't you bring in some gray hairs to kind of, you know, tap their collective wisdom and steer you towards the next level. Um, They're like, fine, you know, bro culture, invite me to the party.
6: Yeah. In fact, there was, um, you know, there there was a time and I I know I sound like grandpa Simpson, but it it was the standard (laughs) practice for a long, long time that, that, if you had a young founder you paired him up with a a gray hair right so uh, bill gates and paul allen they brought in uh, a guy named john shirley who was the the first i think he was the ceo of microsoft or he was president i forget what his title was but he basically was a more experienced guy and then at apple they they paired jobs up with actually even before scully there were other grown-ups in there with him and uh, and at Google, even John uh, Doerr at, at Kleiner Perkins insisted that they get Eric Schmidt, and th- they, this was pretty, pretty, pretty much conventional wisdom. Um, and in the last bubble, in this last bubble, there's just been this change in which people are now seem to believe that the founders are better off being left to their own devices, you know, and you don't want to bring in adult supervision. Just let let boys be boys. And I don't know who. Thought that I guess they feel like the founders will chafe under the <clears throat> the control of a, of a gray hair or it, it actually may be that um, because there's so much money competing for deals now, the founders, the entrepreneurs are in, in a much more powerful position than they've ever been before. So maybe that they can just drive that bargain and say I'm not going to take your money if you're going to insist on me. Bringing in a grown up, so right. I'll,
5: I'll go, go to myself. this other incubator where you know it, we're, we're having a jacuzzi and um t- tequila, yeah. And so,
6: uh, and so Not they'll look around to, wrong you know, with that, but I mean, yeah. they have a lot more power. And and so, yeah. you have these, I, yeah, uh, you know, and I think maybe that sort of started with Zuckerberg where he, he he very he was smart, he brought in Charles Sandberg, but he also, um, he also rig things so that he controlled all the stock in the company he could never be pushed out. Um but I, I think there is a sense that um these young guys know what they're doing, we should just all get out of their way. And um some do I guess, but I am not sure all of them do. But is so is that is that the next
5: disruption the, 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 the Uber's wake up call when someone says, Oh, you you were you, you were right. <laughs>
6: Well, we started to see some explosions. Like this company, zenifits had a big yeah. you know, blow because they were out of control, and, and uh, so you're starting to see some backlash. Again, I think it will be if people, if the people who put up the money start getting hurt, then you'll see you'll see change. But but not until. And um, right now, the market is so irrational that you know things just kind of keep going on, and nobody's 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 in any pain right now. So so. We only have a few minutes left, so what's next for you? Uh, I'm trying to write a a uh, a book proposal, I'll do another book, and uh, maybe develop a TV show based on 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 this uh, on this book on Disrupted about about this the stuff we've been talking about about trying to reinvent yourself and is that really possible and what is it like like when you know mom and dad get get laid off and suddenly you know there are bills to pay and you have to sort of quote unquote reinvent yourself. So, um, I think, I think there could be a funny communist show in that or, 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 the world's most depressing TV show ever. I, I don't know which, <laughs> maybe the latter, but, um, or it might start off funny and then just get really, really depressed. That's what people really. say about the book. They're like, it's really funny, but then about halfway in, it gets serious. And then it's really kind of heavy. I'm like, yeah, sorry about that. And, and so, so, um, <sighs> you know, it, one of our
5: first, you know, our first year, we had, we were fortunate to have a high school classmate of mine who was an author, um, Bill Powers, wow. who wrote, um, Hamlet's Blackberry. And he's actually out yeah. your way. Um, oh, he, yeah, moved, yeah. he moved out to the North Shore. Um, uh, oh, he, he left the, the Washington Post and National Journal, moved out to the North Shore and he disconnected and he wrote a book about it and it, it was kind of a, a big hit and, um, and so I asked them, what what was the reception in Silicon Valley? And it was, it was shockingly great. Like, they were welcoming in, and, you know, he was being brought in to talk to Google and Apple. They all wanted to hear this perspective. And I'm wondering, I'm, I'm suspecting you're not getting quite the same welcome, because you're not, um, it's not just a theoretical thing. You're actually, in some ways, naming names.
6: I am getting some invitations to come speak, Um but yeah, I think uh, you know, they don't want. You know, I don't think anybody wants to bring you in and have you rant about diversity to them. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, whereas, yeah, his thing. I'd love to meet him, by the way. Um, oh, I'll do an intro because yeah, I think people in Silicon Valley—that is like—it's so rare that they're offline that that is now more valuable to them than anyone know, else. I remember reading uh, a guy I know wrote this story about you go on these weekend retreats in San Francisco where you you, know, you had to give up all your electronics and and just just talk to people and, and these guys, these kids would pay like huge amounts of money to go away and sleep in a tent and not, not have any, um, and, and not have any contact. Um, I mean, not have any electronics. It's like, dude, we call that camping, you know, in New England. We just, you know what I mean? You go up to the White Mountains and you can't get any signal on your phone. And, uh, anyway, uh, um, so we only got a minute left.
5: Um, if, where can people find you? And, uh, um, what would you like them to know before you leave?
6: Oh, uh, please! Reach, I'm on Twitter at Real Dan Lyons, and uh, I guess uh, I hope they'll read the book and, and give it a try, you know, and, and maybe get a kick out of it. It's, you know, parts of it are pretty funny, and it's entertaining, so I hope they'll check it out.
5: And, and so, um, Dan, and any appearances you want to plug in the minute we have left?
6: Oh, uh, let me think. I'm going to London next week to uh, promote the book there, so if anybody's listening from england uh come to some of those events i guess
5: yeah. all right well it's been a pleasure having you and um, check them out the book is disrupted
0: baseball fans bet mgm is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season step into the batter's box for bet mgm swing for the fences free to play game pick any area of the strike zone and take your best swing if you get a single